Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Samantha Godwin. Samantha Godwin is resident fellow at the Yale Law School. She's a philosopher. She's a lawyer. um, And we're going to be talking about SARS-CoV-2 policy. Um, Samantha Godwin, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Vinay. Thanks. Um, uh, I've been following your 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 stuff uh, with interest, and I really appreciated your point of view. And we had a conversation before, um, so I wonder if before we start, maybe it would be helpful for the listeners and maybe for me to go over your background. Um, I was asking a little bit before this podcast. Um, uh, you uh, are somebody who has a background that includes philosophy and law. Um, you did your undergraduate degree at University College London. Uh, you went on um, to do your JD um, uh, from uh, Georgetown University. Um, and then you've spent time at uh, the Yale Law School. I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about your background. Um, is your interest philosophy, law, both? How did you how did you how did you fall into this path? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, I think there were pragmatic considerations that um, uh, led me from philosophy to law and now sort of act way that I can uh, make it relevant to legal and political questions that um, have more real world implications than I think uh, I could probably um, do in just a, a pure philosophy um, academic trajectory. So I do, so, so I, I do both, but I, I, I do law that's informed by analytic philosophy. Or at least that's what I try to do. <laughs> well, these days, uh, both of these fields, I think, are deeply relevant to where we find ourselves. Um, I often note you are uh, a commenter on, uh, on on dialogues about SARS-CoV-2 and our policy around it. Um, maybe I'll, I'll start by picking your brain about the issue that uh, got me all riled up recently. And I think you saw it a little bit, which is um, the use of Facebook um, having independent fact checkers um, fact check opinion articles and if deemed misleading down throttle them uh which means i think that fewer people will visually see it uh they will be stamped as misleading um you're somebody who lives a life of ideas of the the war of ideas of different uh ways of conceptualizing issues you defend those issues at length in your publications um 
What are your thoughts on this, this role, uh, unique role, unprecedented that a single um, social media platform is viewed by so many people and that a process can be instituted that we can decide, you, you, you can tell us what you think of the process um, to, to restrict or downthrottle information? Yeah, well, I think I um, I think I agree with uh, some statements I've seen by you um, on YouTube uh, that Facebook and Twitter operate as unique uh, information intermediaries where they have the type of monopoly power that that government censors might have enjoyed in previous eras, yes. but that uh, given there are the amount of uh, people who get their news exclusively from Facebook and Twitter, or who at least have their opinions about what counts as credible, what counts as the shared received opinion, what counts as the expert consensus, formed through the way those platforms um, present information to them is it's not just that it's it's dangerous in the sort of um, epistemic sense that it prevents people from being able to formulate uh, an understanding of what's going on outside of the particular filter that uh, Twitter and Facebook and their selective fact-checking uh, that in a previous YouTube video and in a, an op-ed, I think you got um, very effectively into by um, uh, labeling uh, content as, um, I forget the exact term they use on Facebook, but- Misleading. Right, la you label it misleading. And so when when you have the official stamp, as you, you rightly noted, you can't share that without already um, introducing it as not, uh, not uh, something that others ought to consider seriously, something that they ought to shelve in the same category as um, a conspiracy theory, even if it's um, something that's both, uh, I, I mean, I mean, there's a, so, so, so the, the epistemic danger is that people don't know what's going on except through this extremely um, filtered lens through these corporate monopolies um, that apparently have very strong political preferences. Um, maybe they have strong political preferences for profit motivated reasons. And like we can talk about why that might be the case. And these are not partisan political preferences exactly. They're more like political preferences in favor of whatever is um, most likely to lead to the type of um, fear responses, outrage responses, and contempt responses that I think uh, really drive social media engagement and drive uh, traditional online media engagement and therefore ad revenue. But 
nonetheless, the, even though they're profit motivated, there are still um, political lines on uh, the most important social questions, the social questions that have entirely reorganized society recently around SARS-CoV-2. Um, so I think that the impact on people's ability to um, form their own understanding of the world is terrifying. Um, and then of course the political implication is terrifying uh, because when people's, uh, when the informational environment that someone's in is calibrated to tune their understanding of events to the maximum terror, uh, of course, um, that's going to uh, lead to uh, lead to disproportionate responses, lead to responses that are driven by um, by not, not fear that's irrational in the sense that it isn't prompted by something that's truly um, dangerous and truly dreadful, which I think we all agree that COVID-19 is, um, but rather a fear that's directed in a way that um, that is both counterproductive to um, alleviating the the source of the the danger and counterproductive to living a, in a humane society. So I, I think we've we've really seen the um, suppression of countervailing considerations uh, of values other than COVID-19 mitigation. Yeah, um, it's gonna lead, yeah. Now that's where I was gonna go with, because I was looking at your paper um, and that was what I was gonna ask you. But, um, you know, I think you put that nicely where, I mean, the word you that jumped out at me is, you know, you describe it as even terrifying. I was talking to a colleague uh, about this information uh, issue, which is this unprecedented power. I mean, so many, hundreds of millions of people are getting their information through this platform and the platform has a throttle switch that they can turn down and say this idea even if the users deem it uh correct it is not correct and we will down regulate that and that to me is um i said that if if we are in a war of ideas and i'm happy to fight that war uh this is a nuclear weapon it's a chemical weapon it's a it's a type of warfare that i'm not familiar with the typical warfare of reason and argument is the warfare i'm familiar with um but the question i wanted to ask you was related to your you know draft paper that you're working on which you have entitled proportionality in pandemics and the asymmetric mental health harms of isolation um that, that that's the subtitle the other title you offer is caring about more than one health crisis at once I wonder if you might unpack this a little bit. I think it's, um, you know, the title uh, and, and, and what I read about it, uh, you know, strikes me as something, you know, a deeply profound observation, um, which is the way in which our mind 
ways and anchors onto different health threats when really we're all in the same business, maximizing human health in all dimensions from number of times your heart beats to the quality of your life, your mental health, your social health. Um, and we're facing trade-offs and choices. Um, and yet to some degree, the media narrative, the, the Twitter narrative um, becomes skewed. Um, I wonder if you might walk us through your thinking on this issue. It's a very important issue. Sure. Uh, I, so I, I think, as you know, the um, sources of morbidity and mortality that are most likely to um, most likely to have the mo- to um, harm the most people and cause the most uh, death are not the sources of morbidity and mortality that people are most afraid of, not just post-COVID-19, but pre-COVID-19. Heart disease, for instance, has never rated as a very uh, highly, uh, um, highly charged uh, fear factor in either the media or public discourse or what, for instance, people Google um, on Google statistics as compared to um, types of cancers that kill to the number of people who die from cardiovascular disease. Um, we have uh, had an intense fear of, of um, airplane terrorism uh, since 2001, which I think has you know, been now that's not what people are afraid of going onto airplanes anymore, I, I, I guess. But that, that, of course, was in extraordinary disproportion to the, say, um, danger that you would encounter if you uh, drove a car at the same distance uh, that you would have otherwise taken an airplane. So, we have, I think, a very have a very poor baseline ability to assess uh, risk to our life and health, um, and to that of those we care about. So we're also the the gap between, say, the number of actual child abductions by non-parents um, and the amount of fear around child abduction by non-parents and the degree to which people try to, um, structure their kids' lives around it is enormous, right? Um, but I, I think, um, what, one of the, uh, sort of uniquely disturbing things is that I think we've gotten into something like a totalizing zero risk bias with regard to COVID-19, meaning that um, we are, so in general, people are predisposed um, to uh, wanting to eliminate in total certain identifiable risks over the aggregate reduction of risk. If they, um, I, I think um, 
Daniel Kahneman has uh, some work on this that seems to show that it's a it's a fairly um, uh, white it is it's a phenomenon you can produce with uh, um, uh, risks that aren't necessarily um, as media charts as COVID nineteen. But in, with COVID nineteen, it's as though all of the damage from efforts at mitigation um, gets completely ignored, except in so far as that damage might itself be mitigated by means that don't even have the hypothetical potential to marginally reduce the efficacy of COVID-19 mitigation efforts. So um, when you see articles on the mental health crisis of um, COVID-19 uh, driven isolation, um, often for, for children given um, the uh, school shutdowns, but right. um, for adults who live by themselves, for instance, or the parents who have um, built their lives around the expectation that they be able to have their kids in school rather than having to perform this impossible task of simultaneously educating their kids and and um, working from home. Um, you have, uh, the, the tendency is not to think, well, okay, how, how, how can we balance these two harms such that maybe the, say, the marginal added benefit to COVID-19 reduction from, uh, uh, say, telling people they should um, uh, never meet inside with people from other households um, uh, during the pandemic, which, okay, that may be fine during the summer, but during the winter, uh, 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 this is, effectively means you're not meeting people during the pandemic. Um, what's the marginal uh, the the, more, the the marginal benefit of that it, it isn't considered against to say well meet inside but under say ventilated conditions or only people who are very low risk or if at least if you both Already, if one of you has already had COVID-19 or you've already had a COVID-19 vaccination or perhaps are already fully vaccinated, well, of course, then you should um, go ahead and uh, do that because the marginal benefit of not doing that to COVID-19 mitigation is so, so minimal, but the benefit to um, your well-being, your well-being, your mental health, but also I think um, to uh, your, uh, potentially your medical health, given that I think um, social isolation is a very well-established um, 
all cause mortality factor, um, even apart from subjectively rated loneliness, I think. Um, so uh, instead, of, instead of that type of analysis, which would make sense if we were thinking about this in a more rational way, um, but would, given the fact that COVID-19 is as devastating as it is to the population as a whole, um, devastating in a demographically restricted way where we can really, where the, the actual risk of serious illness and, and death is um, hugely um, age moderated, such that um, some uh, the, the type of universal prescriptions we're giving um, just don't uh, um, make a lot of sense from a total harm reduction standpoint. But instead of doing instead of thinking that way, we instead tell people, well, they should schedule more um, Zoom calls. They should, um, you know, go for for walks or meditate or do all of the yeah. things that like, yeah, I mean, those are, that's great, but that's, that, that's maybe your advice if this, if this state of affairs lasted for months. Yes. That's not exactly um, going to to alleviate the the burdens of um, isolation over a twelve to eighteen to however many months uh, long this process is going to go. I mean, I, I, uh, and that was back when we didn't. Um, have I think any reasonable expectation that we could have such effective vaccines so early? Right. Um, people were thinking. Pe people had adopted the same attitude when this looked like it was going to be a, at least a two to five year. Yes. Um, right. No, I think that's that's a super. I mean, many things you said resonated with me. Just a few that struck me. I mean, one, you acknowledge the very steep age gradient and how this virus is not nearly the same in young people versus older people. And that's a fact that I think has, uh, it's easy to gloss over. I think a lot of people do gloss over it. One of the consequences of that fact is when you talk about kids um, and pulling them out of schools, the, the marginal impact you might be having on the pandemic is very small. In fact, some studies suggest there's no marginal benefit at all. The mental health uh, crisis, child abuse crisis, that is that you don't see because uh, it's not being documented. Uh, that uh, That's what's being missed from the dialogue. Um, I think the other point you made is that um, some of these things that are sustainable for a month, they won't last a year. And we're lucky that we even, we're talking about a year rather than two or five. Or <laughs> yeah, right. We're lucky we've been talking about a year. Um, so I guess my question is, um, and on the flip side, we see um, we see what politicians are doing. Texas just removed all restrictions. My friend went out to dinner there um, recently, um, indoor dining. Um, and it's easy to go on social media and see people say, condemn that as irresponsible. But what I think they're missing is, I think, aren't people 
um, telling you that they are uh, prioritizing the social interactions over even um, some increased risk of viral spread. Um, they are doing so through their elected representatives and do, through their actions because they are are, are, are partaking in these behaviors. Um, so I guess I, I wonder what is the ire about? Um, is it that we, people want politicians to enforce policies that are unpopular in those locales? Because I think that the Texas policy is telling you what Texas people want. And my understanding is that is in fact what Texas people want. They do not want further restrictions. They do not want mask mandates, um, perhaps even the majority of them. Um, that may result in some increased uh, pandemic spread, um, but it may also result in them participating in more uh, um, human interactions. The flip side is who knows what it might result in. Uh, the caseload is falling. There's a huge amount of people that have already been infected and vaccinations are being pushed out rather rapidly. So there's some uncertainty as to the penalty that it, that they'll face. I mean, famously, Florida was thought to be facing a big penalty. Uh, it never really materialized. They've done quite well, despite the fact they've done very little to contain the virus. So I wonder from a legal perspective, you know, many of these choices are framed as science choices. This is what science says to do. But how do you view it? Who who is making the choice? Who ought to make the choice? Um, who is actually making the choice? Um, how do you think about that? Uh, well, I think I think I think you raise a, bu a bunch of distinct questions. So, one question is why why is there so so much social media ire? About um, about say Texas reopening or Florida reopening or earlier I um, earlier on I kept uh, watching how social democratic Sweden uh, was bashed by all of my social democratic friends um, for being. Uh, marginally worse off in the pandemic than it's Nordic, uh, other Nordic countries as if Nordic is a demographic. <laughs> That's what I that said. It's not even a fair comparison. Yeah, but always it's against Nordic. Yeah, countries. Like they, right. Okay. But, but, right. It's like not, not, uh, I, I mean, it's, uh, they, they had, They've had throughout the pandemic entirely middling um, uh, death rates and infection rates among European countries, um, and certainly far less so than the, the the big like police enforced, military enforced. I think in Spain's case, uh, lockdown countries in in Europe, but. Um, Nevertheless, they were the they, they were the embarrassment, right? Um, and uh, that I think I think that's so. Why why people responded so strongly to that is, I think, a really interesting psychological question, um, and one that I, I can really only speculate about. Um, then your I think distinct question of or who ought to be making these decisions. Is this a science decision or a political decision or maybe a democratic decision? Um, I think is um, 
his hood because in a lot of ways, although our um, we we like to call the um, the we like to call we like the phrase liberal Western democracies when um, in a lot of ways uh, our uh, political systems aren't especially um, democratically responsive um, and they're certainly not very participatory and there can certainly be a very large spread between um, what people are want politicians to do and what they actually do. Although, uh, frankly, in the case of the pandemic, I'm not sure they would uh, uh, the same direction as, say, a more robust conception of democracy requiring not only um, popular control over the government, but an informational environment where people can uh, form their views without having uh, having the the image of the world um, filtered to them in a manner likely to to lead to to really uh, um, a really warped perception of reality. And so I I think, I think with regard to the Iowa, well, there's a lot of, um, there, there's there's still a, a tremendous amount of fear, but since we have a really politically, I, I want to say a, a, a really hard partisan um, environment, at least, uh, since at least as long as I can, I can remember. And I mean, frankly, I was, I was part of it um, until, until the pandemic. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I've, I've said really awful things about Trump supporters on social media um, and, and was, you know, a, a very, like, uh, a, a, not, not of the camp that we shouldn't, try to persuade people that I think a lot of people got into, but um, I, I can understand the uh, emotional appeal of partisanship um, when you think that, when you think that the um, people from the other party um, are acting on, on values that are, um, uh, fundamentally inhumane. And I, I think that's um, what I, I, w- I would like to think that when people say they think that that Governor Abbott or um, Sweden um, or Florida or killing people um, and they're doing this because they I mean, it's it's a bit of a joke with Sweden, but I guess with Texas and Florida because they're prioritizing the market economy over human lives. Um, that that's that's the way they seriously feel. But at the same time, it's 
a sort of selective Iowa in the sense that they, you don't, you don't see, you tend to see anger about the types of social restrictions that the people angry about them are able to bear. So if you have a secure professional managerial job that is not going to be threatened from the loss of a a idea of of your physical presence at a workplace. Um, And if you're, say, able to school your kids in a tutored pod the way I know a lot of people are doing, um, if they have the means to, or to send their kids to private school, which they are probably not broadcasting on social media, but <laughs> exactly, but they tell me. They tell me, yeah, privately. Right, right, right. But, but and and frankly, it's to tell people. Well, you should you should just stay home and just interact with people in your family and household. Is a lot a lot smaller of an ask if that means okay, you're going to stay at a very comfortable location with access to the outdoors with maybe a dog and your, your two uh, older kids and um, and your, I don't know, set of family and friends who you're in sufficiently inner circles with that um, you a rich social life, not not the extravagant social life that you might have been able to have um, prior to the pandemic, but nonetheless, um, the type of social life that still provides your life with a lot of meaning um, versus someone who's in, say, a studio apartment in Manhattan who is basically in a kind of a, a gentle type of solitary confinement where they only ever see people through screens. Um, that's a, a radically different ask. Um, and I think the um, one one of the one of the interventions that looks like it might have been um, quite promising was the um, uh, individual case isolation strategy that places like Hong Kong pursued, where instead of, say, identifying um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive uh, people and sending them home to infect the rest of their household or um, nursing home, uh, they would uh, send people to uh, Central um, yes. hotel hotel quarantine yes. um, yeah. and like that uh, is in a lot of ways a lot more effective since as you know most respiratory infections are transmitted within households um, so so in a lot of ways the people who um, suffer the least from uh, the stay the F home motto. Um, likewise, um, 
contributes the most statistically to uh, transmission of SARS-CoV-2 since they're both more likely to be infected and more likely to spread it to someone else uh, who they live with. Um, but if we did individual case isolation, that would that 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 would have sort of equalized the burden, so to speak. Uh, maybe everyone who ended up uh, getting infected would spend two weeks in a potentially decent, potentially crappy hotel, depending on, I guess, local resources. But that no, no one expressed ire that they were that Texas wasn't following the Hong Kong model, oh, right? They were expressing interesting. They were expressing ire. Yeah, you're taking it. Yes, they express ire about the things that they can tolerate uh, in their comfortable uh, lives, um, but not ire for not doing things they could not tolerate, uh, which were things that were done in Wuhan province. That's an excellent point. I mean, exactly. The things you said made me think about a few things that I'll just comment on briefly. One was. Um, your your point about politicization um, about this whole process, and I guess you know um, I'm, I'm probably uh, aligned with you, uh, somebody on the political left. Uh, although I, I don't spend too much time talking about politics uh, it, beyond my interest in drug approvals, um, but um, I would say that I thought in a number of ways politics and SARS-CoV-2 policies became wed in ways that don't make sense to me and were not necessary. For instance, um, you know, uh, it, it's easy to say that Trump was bad because he refused to wear a mask on a few occasions, but there was a zealotry on the other side that mask became a symbol of purity on the left and, and people were wearing masks outdoors. They're having two-year-olds wear masks, settings where I think many of us legitimately wonder if they do anything. I mean, <laughs> I'm happy to wonder that do anything when you're running 20 miles in a sea breeze and yet people, you know, posting selfies of the sort. Um, and I think that actually deepens polarization because if your Twitter feed is Trump's an idiot, Trump's an idiot. Here's a selfie of me running. Uh, Biden is great. You know, Biden is great. You know, um, public option, health care um, in the minds of third parties, they all become wedded and, and, and you're you're polarizing it in a way that you don't even see. Um, the other example that comes to my mind is hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I think very many people were not that very interested in it. There are a few randomized trials ongoing. Trump said he loved it, so folks on his side gravitated. But then people don't remember what happened on the other side. People who hated Trump said it was um, a deadly. Uh, you know, your heart would just suddenly stop beating. And both of them actually um, made it harder to recruit for trials. Um, one of the trialists would tell you um, that when when people started drumming up the fears, the negatives, uh, it also prevented us from answering a question. Um, and, and, and so that was kind of a, a both directions problem I see. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you and kind of close by saying is that the issue of um, masks that I know you've tweeted about and you've pointed to this, which is, you know, people can say whatever they wish to say, but uh, I was alive in early March of 2020 and I listened to what the experts said. And, and you point this out. Uh, not only did they say you ought not do this, they said it could theoretically increase your risk of acquiring the virus. Six weeks later, they said the opposite. They moved. Um, and, 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 and I do not believe 
And I will go, I will say that there is no substantive evidence that emerged in those six weeks that warrants a pivot of that dimension. Uh, that was not justified by medical evidence, in my opinion. Um, it was justified by a, a um, subjective opinion of a lot of inconclusive evidence. Um, and, 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 and that was, you know, the justification, uh, which, you know, I don't really have a strong objection to. I just saying, you know, you should say it as it is, but, um, when that happened, um, it, uh, you know, somebody pointed this out to me that it, there's never been a situation where in 50 days you moved from don't do this. This is the guidance of the bland to, if you say, don't do this, you're, you're, pro you're promoting disinformation. That's a fast, that's a fast move. The only thing faster was when I wrote that after vaccination, you can hang out, have a dinner party. Um, and they literally tweeted at me that I was promoting misinformation. Now, five weeks later, uh, the CDC says you can. So now it's of course the canon. Um, uh, but my question to you is about this, inf this, this, this kind of shifting. Um, you know, it's not surprising when there's uncertainty that there will be dramatic shifts in how people think about an issue. Um, but how do you balance that with credibility? Because you can lose credibility if you if you told me it was gonna increase my risk and then five weeks later you said, I'm an idiot for not doing it, I will lose credibility in you. you know? um, how do you think about that issue? Well, I, I think, um, I, I think this is also a question that, this is also, uh, could be broken into a bunch of discrete questions. It could be broken into um, the question about what, like, what's the socially and politically responsible way to do public health messaging, um, and it could also be broken into a question about what's the relationship between um, science and policy um, in, uh, in like a political philosophy um, context and what's the relationship between science and and policy in the current uh, political climate. And I think, um, I, I, I think one of the really, um, the, the, the frightening combination is in first, losing the fact value distinction, losing the distinction between what questions are empirical questions where um, research into the way the world works, the way say a virus is transmitted and what, uh, what environments increase and decrease transmission by what degrees research, which is, as you know, um, often uh, extremely um, uh, fraught with methodological problems where you say have people using laboratory dummy representations and treating that as, as if it translates directly into real world settings. Um, using, uh, I, I mean, not, we're not even talking about like the problem of using observational studies as opposed to randomized control trials, but instead- Bioplausibility. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Some of these studies are terrible. I, I don't know what anyone is, why anyone is pretending otherwise. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah, it's confusing the two. You're putting it right. Yes. But, 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 but then say 
assume assume they do all of the all of the research in the most rigorous fashion possible. But they, I don't think any. I I I think um, the so mask so I mean masks. Wearing them or source control as protection for other people, and as far as far as I can tell, um, the the real world trials for the for um, personal protection in different contexts seems to produce seems to have very mixed um, evidence. I think um, the um, Oxford. Central for Evidence-Based Medicine has some good write-ups about this, but there just really aren't any source control um, real-world studies that I think have have been very um, uh, compelling. And please, please I, let me I know. I agree if you with your summary. I'm I'm not going to say otherwise. That is my summary of the literature as well. Right. Um, and but when when you say that, okay, the question. The question is not going to be the, the question of whether or not, say, masks should be mandated or um, uh, school closures should be government policy. That's that's not a that's a question that we can determine by 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 what say Anthony Fauci or whomever your favorite expert um, says needs to happen. And that's sort of the way it's phrased. It's phrased as um, we can't go outside the home without wearing a mask or it's uh, we can't send our kids to school or we can't. Uh, um, it's It's just not possible at this point to um meet people outside of your household in person um when none of these things will matter as a physical impossibility uh they, they're making these claims as if they, they are in effect stating policy preferences i would i think people ought not to go outside without masks or i think a government ought to mandate masks or i think a government ought to close schools or ought to implement a stay home order but instead of phrasing it in what i think is the only sort of uh conceptually accurate way as um a, state, a, a judgment about what policies ought to be implemented, a judgment that you would have to defend by uh, reasoned argument as opposed to appeal to the professional authority of the person who has the facts. They instead state it as if it's a factual claim when clearly it is not against the physical laws of nature to meet up with people during a pandemic, for instance, that's, that's not a, that's not a fact question. That's a value question or a policy question. Um, but if you, but to do policy questions and fact questions, then the virologists um, no longer have 
monopoly on the discussion, then you have to have a broader uh, democratic discourse yes. about uh, about how how we should think about um, the type of society we want to live in, and whether this way of dealing with a very real threat, but a threat that I don't think is astronomically it is it, outside the bounds of the type of risks people are exposed to by say orders of magnitude and i think if you look at i, I think if you compare um even the most uh uh concerning infection fatality ratio tables for aids to the um, actuarial life tables by the Social Security Administration, for instance, um, we're talking about threats that are um, we're, we're, talk we're talking about infection fatality ratios that are, say, um, within the scale of a person's annual hazard of death. So. Hey, of course you want to, because that would mean basically doubling your annual uh, likelihood of dying. But that's not the same thing as, say, thinking that this is this is not the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu. This is not the Black Death. This is um, something that we we should be able to have. Uh, I think a more um, a, a debate that admits for values other than uh, just crushing the virus, a debate that admits for the other things that we care about. I think, you know, the way you put it is really astute to me. Um, and I think that one of the things that was conflated here is that many of these things we did and, you know, a pure scientist wouldn't tell you what you ought to do. That's, of course, I think the broader discussion you uh, uh, allude to. But a pure scientist could tell you that if you did each of these things, this is what you would get. The relative risk reduction from, you know, from a mask mandate is 7.2% reduction in SARS-CoV-2 transmission. From banning indoor dining is 12.2%. From banning this is this percent. From banning outdoor ice skating rinks is minus 4.2% because people will move indoors instead. So it'll actually be counterproductive. You know, that's what a good scientist would be able to tell you. The problem is they don't know any of those numbers. And they're not, no one was committed to even trying to answer those numbers. Um, there was nothing done to get any closer to answering any of those numbers for any single thing, to my knowledge. Um, uh, maybe with one exception, which I think we'll have a cluster RCT out of the Guinea. We had that one Danish mask study, but you know, underpowered for, it looked for a big difference. Um, uh, that to me is a big missed opportunity. And one of the reasons that opportunity was missed is I think people who are well-intentioned think they already know the answer to questions they don't know the answer to. Um, and that's also a problem, I think, around debating what people ought to do after they had vaccinated. Um, I tried to make tables to say, like, if you flew, um, you know, from, I imagine you're, you're out on the East Coast, I'm here on the West Coast, if you flew out here, if we were to do this in person, what would be the risk of that flight? Um, I see sort of estimates in the one in 5,000 ballpark that, you know, you would acquire SARS-CoV-2 if you were to do that. Um, if you were vaccinated and I was vaccinated and we met in the same room together, what's the risk um, that anybody, not just you or I or any third party, would get SARS-CoV-2 as a result of that? 
that. I did it some back of the envelope. I think it's on the order of one in 10 to the power of six or one in 10 to the power of seven to put it in comparison. So when we're making these choices of what one ought to do, we need some relative sense of what that, you know, as you put it, you know, what, what the benefit will be. Um, but we weren't really committed to answering those questions. And when you don't answer those questions, it, that kind of slip of language happens often because you don't really know what it's going to do but you just know people ought to do it because it's probably beneficial. And, and you, you take a conversation that really needs to be the scientists focusing on the science and the policy people debating whether or not it's worth it and the trade-offs to something where the scientist usurps the power, I believe, makes that choice for everybody and, and to some degree precludes you from ever knowing the answer. I think there are some people who will have precluded us from studying some of these things because of their ardent, passionate rhetoric that exceeded, I think, known evidence. Um, Anyway, I know our time is almost up. I'm going to give you the last word, and then I'm not going to say anything. I want to thank you for doing this. I think it's really interesting to me, um, and I've been a big supporter in interdisciplinary discussions around this, and I think we haven't done enough of that. Um, I'll give you the last word. Um, I know our time is up in a couple of minutes, so yeah. Let me. So um, thank you for doing this, and I don't know. What does that make you think about? Oh, well, hey, thanks you so much for having me on, and I, I, guess, I, I guess to – conclude by responding to um, the, uh, I think also various state analysis that you just offered. I, I think one of the really um, worrisome elements is that it's not, it's not just that we don't know the marginal risk reduction or the marginal um, risk increase that uh, the different different non-pharmaceutical interventions targeted. Um, I, I get a very clear impression that um, the people who, the, the scientists who are, as, you're, as you said, usurping the policy debate and treating it as if it's, if it's uh, a debate about facts rather than choices. One of the, I think the bonds um, motto that um, we got uh, early early on was one of the the scalier uh, bits of public messaging. Um, it, it's not just that they don't know; it's that they don't think the specific question is that important. Um, they, they don't think the numbers are that important because they don't, they, they think instead we should apply a precautionary principle to all of these questions. Well, maybe wearing masks outdoors in a park only has a minuscule reduction, but since it doesn't cost us anything, we just have a, a, a we, we just say we can't do it. But I, I think to conclude, I I just like to offer that um, the 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 amount of misery from um, social deprivation and from from losing the ability to interact and connect to people on an emotional on an emotionally meaningful level. Um, which I, I do think often means having to meet in person. I don't think we can go for a year without 
doing that in a humane society or the two or three years it looked like we were likely to. Um, we are, that's not, uh, the, the precaution toward the, the sort of like the, the maximum caution towards COVID-19 means a, a lack of any caution towards all of the collateral effects and all of the forms of harm that the non-pharmaceutical interventions targeting COVID can cause. So I would I, I would like to, I, I think maybe interdisciplinarity is what we need because we need to get away from the idea that COVID is the only thing that matters when it comes to making decisions about how to organize our lives and about how um, that that the the most it, it's like we've we've become a form of limited utilitarian limited negative utilitarians where the single utility function the single the single measure of well-being is how little um COVID-19 there is and that I think clearly doesn't align with what anyone actually values so we should stop acting as if uh as if it does so anyways thanks you so much for having me on that's very well said thank you samantha godwin you've been listening to season three of plenary session plenary session is produced by kiana klosner music by ian straley and audrey tran the views expressed on plenary session are those of whoever said it and no one else plenary session is not medical advice Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.